You are listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. I'm your host, Miles Lasseter. On today's show, I speak with Slava Sonitsin. He's an accomplished investor, entrepreneur, inventor, co-founder, and CEO of Mighty Buildings, a construction technology company creating beautiful, affordable, and sustainable homes using 3D printing, advanced materials, and robotic automation. Mighty Buildings is based in Oakland, California, and is backed by several notable investors, including Coastal Ventures, Xeno Ventures, and Y Combinator. Mighty Buildings has a near zero waste production process, preventing almost 2,000 kilograms of CO2 emissions per 3D printed home. They are committed to achieve net zero by 2028, making the company 22 years ahead of the construction industry. They've shipped over 10 buildings from their factory. They've raised over $100 million and have a team of roughly 150 people. On the show, we discuss how to level up as a founder, keep yourself getting better. He has lots of book recommendations. We talk about how to admit that you're wrong, building a founding team with the right skill sets and different approaches in different startup ecosystems and what we can learn from each other. I think you'll enjoy this, so stay tuned. Welcome to Startups for Good. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, great uh, to to, uh, meet you and great to meet your audience. Yeah, so I wanted to jump right in. I'm curious about what are some of the biggest challenges with manufacturing housing in a factory? Um, manufacturing housing in a factory is actually a phenomenon that has been pretty much known for like over 50 years in the US, right? And But for one reason or another, it didn't really uh, get much adoption early on, like uh, mainly because uh, those initial companies in the, in the sector, uh, they position themselves as sort of as providers of very sort of cheap uh, options and a lot of times it would like position as a mobile home or like mobile park home. So essentially when uh, some of these manufactured home companies try to go to, you know, uh, traditional, more traditional housing, they were not able to do that because of this perception of like sort of low quality homes built to uh, HUD, which is uh, basically a federal uh, building cost standard for those manufactured homes. So when this new generation of companies appear, like this prefab, what you call like model companies, they essentially are just next generation of manufactured homes, right? So like it's, it's just, you know, they're trying to do it like better with better materials, with more uh, industrialized approach. But if you really try to think about manufacturing house in the factory, U.S. unfortunately is not the one leading the the wave, right? So like there are companies in Japan, in Finland, in some other places which really excel at this, right? So and they achieve much higher quality, much better, uh, you know, industrialization, um, and at, as a result, like you know, they achieve much higher quality at like lower 
price per square foot compared to you know traditional on-site process, right? So uh, if you're talking about like specifically us, we try to look at this from very different perspective. We try to look at fundamentals, what actually makes it difficult to produce homes, whether it's like, you know, prefab or on site, you still have to deal with a lot of times with traditional materials, right? A lot of times it's still stick built uh, one way or another. You're just having like traditional materials coming together, uh, and uh, there are just limits in what you can achieve there in terms of industrialization, automation. You know, companies like, you know, in the past, like Capera and some of others uh, tried to, you know, bring it a little like uh, higher in automation rates. And they tried to experiment with materials like CLT, cross-laminated timber. But even then, like there are certain really um, like little limits, like you still deal with like uh, panels, essentially 2D panels. 3D printing, in our case, unlocks this potential to print very complex structures in 3D, uh, including like, you know, wall, you know, structures, cavities, like MEP channels, and even not just vertical walls, but also, uh, you know, roof elements and all sorts of, you know, engineering elements of the building as well, right? So just give this next level automation potential. As you probably know, like in some other industries, like uh, space industry, people are trying to use 3D printing as well, just to produce very complex parts. And so like making like a bunch of parts that are coming together in traditional process, they just produce very complex mechanical part. And by doing that, they achieve much higher quality and, and throughput, right? So this sort of look at this from fundamentals. So for us, it's very different. It's not just manufactured homes, it's actually next gen uh, uh, you know, approach. And you've invented your own new material to allow you to do this 3D printing, right? Yeah. So we invented the material, which is uh, essentially classified as a thermoset. You can think of materials like Corian, which are uh, present in the construction market. Uh, Corian used typically for uh, interior applications or bathroom uh, interiors and kitchen tabletops, etc. And our material is similar by nature, but we're uniquely capable of printing uh, this type of, you know, this class of materials. So it's really hard. It's actually a material science problem. Like you can think of uh, sort of one other way to explain why it is so difficult. If you think of like photopolymer based materials and there are 3D printers out there, they can print in thin layers, right? But for construction, you need to print in thick layers to achieve necessary throughput and speed, right? So we figure out the formulation that can be thick, uh, printed in these thick layers, this material, when it's strengthened, when it's solidified, it achieves very high mechanical properties, which are necessary for construction. And in order to put together a company with this kind of complex material science and approaching a very old industry that hasn't adopted a lot of technology recently. How do you think about building the team initially, that founding team that had the right skills? So when we started, it was originally two founders, like when just came up with this idea and the Dmitry, my co-founder and CTO and myself, we envisioned this as, a, as just a company that can bring this new material 3D printing uh, technology to the market. We, we didn't really know how we want to approach that, but then we started looking at different like use cases and go-to-market scenarios. And we discovered there are people who really 
you know, know a lot about like, you know, market entry strategies. And we brought Sam Rubin on board, who was a sustainability and compliance expert. And he helped us discover this initial use case, which was a ADU market, accessory dwelling units market by Care Studios. And when we got to Y Combinator, uh, during YC program, we also got the fourth co-founder who was actually more a software person and robotics person, because we very quickly realized that 3D printing wouldn't be enough to really uh, unlock automation potential, right? So you can just print the structure, but then you have to still complete all sorts of other processes. And ideally you want to do it in an automated way. And robotics is just ideal for that. So Alex came on board as well. So we became a founding team of four people with very diverse background. My background is in bench capital. So I actually um, started my own uh, seed uh, capital firm. Originally it was incubator in Singapore, which I basically focus on hardware and frontier tech companies. And I um, started as a company builder, but then I scale it to a venture operator investing in top, you know, hard tech companies like, you know, Boom Supersonic was one of portfolio and is one of portfolio Ruvent Ventures for, as example, right? So I sort of like learn the other side of the puzzle, like, you know, what most of founders never really had, like have experience uh, to deal with, like, you know, firsthand. Uh, so that my, my kind of unique ingredient, but also I'm physicist by training, so I'm heavy technical and I had the product management background before, which is super necessary when you try to productivize the technologies. So Dmitry, as I said, like was much more technical and he was engineering entrepreneur. So he started an engineering company, which dealt with lots of hardware, you know, vending machine, robotic systems. Uh, he was working as a service provider, basically as an engineering service provider to other people and scale it to like hundred employees, right? So he had like all these different like ideas and people who can uh, he can could just quickly assemble a team right so so you can just have a head start and and alex is a way more software i mean none of us was like real understanding what how we want to try to do it from a software angle so alex, alex brought this software angle and operational uh, expertise of uh using scrum and agile methodologies in the company and sam let just fill all those other gaps right so in a way like this founding team help us cover most of initial uh, expertise we needed inside the just founding team, right? And that's probably one of the main advice you can give to people starting company and trying to disrupt hard, hard industries, right? So like, well, like conservative industries, just get the right people with complementary skills and competences, with very open mind, people who are entrepreneurial and, and, and really kind of can think outside of the box get like four or five people to the founding team. Yeah, it sounds like you built a great team with skills in a bunch of different areas that were important. I'm curious, how did you pick your first market? You had this technology and an idea maybe that it could be used in construction, but I think at the beginning, you weren't even sure if you were starting there. So how did you pick that market? Dmitry and I landed in California just before we were accepted to Y Combinator. We didn't know we were going to be accepted to winter 18 batch, right? Uh, but what we started working on is was like go-to-market strategy. We tested different things. And, you know, uh, this idea of Backyard Studios was just one of the, uh, uh, you know, hypothesis, right? But we also tried to talk to construction companies, to developers, very quickly we realized that the industry is very conservative and like everyone was just 
excited about tech demos we are doing, but they were not moving to any commercial or even like pilot discussions, right? So basically at this moment, I realized that probably to really start gaining traction with uh, business people in this industry, you need to ship a few homes, right? So idea was like, okay, let's just do a few backyard studios to demonstrate the actual case, right? So the viability of our case and technology and do it in a compliant way, right? And it just happened later that this market started expanding uh, with these uh, changes in state law, with a lot of local, um, uh, you know, with counties and cities adopting these, uh, you know, local ordinances that supported uh, ADUs, accessory dwelling units. Uh, and sort of market expanded since then, like, I, I would say, like, maybe 30 times, you know, even more based on the pyramids, right? I don't, just don't have the recent data on that. So we were lucky in a way, choosing the right market, which in, in, we just wanted to simplify our go-to-market go just to demonstrate that product makes sense and the technology makes sense. So we can work with larger people and developers and builders and stuff, but the market became large and we sort of realized we can build a substantial company if you just focus on this market alone. And, and right now we are starting to work with developers, but it's instead of like looking at this as alternative model or like model, which we want to like change uh, our strategy to, we look at expansion. So essentially we look at the exact same products we can sell in B2B and developer channels as we sell in like consumer channels, like, you know, as these backyard studios or single family homes, which is starting to deliver uh, from next year as well. So right now it's more like just a channel discussion rather than like, you know, uh, business strategy discussion. I would imagine having B2B and B2C can be complicated. Do you anticipate moving to B2B solely in the future? That's a great question. So uh, there is this concept, which is very popular in some of the largest Chinese uh, unicorns. They think of the business, like you can think of like Xiaomi, for instance, right? They think of this concept of carryover, which is really cool. Like you, you do something, you develop product, and, and then like you develop a certain market, but then you start thinking, are there other markets where you can use this product and sell this profit, right? At profit. So in a way, this concept allows you to start thinking about everything you, what you do as a startup as an asset, which you can then commercialize in some other verticals. Like in our example, for instance, we're building our own factory to ship those backyard studios and single family homes in California. But when we build this micro factory, are there any other geographical markets where we can just partner with someone and can just build say like a joint venture factory, right? Because we don't have as a little team, I mean, we're 150 people now, but still it's quite, quite small. So we don't have bandwidth to approach other geographical markets yet, but we can partner with someone who can deal with all sorts of uh, traditional operations. Like you still have to deal with permits, entitlement, you know, construction on site management. So all these like traditional pieces that we are not changing yet, right? So we optimize them a little bit, but not much. But we focus our factory operations. So we'll just launch a factory and we'll operate on longer term volume contract, right? But this exact same factory, which we built for ourselves. So this concept of carryover is really cool. I start loving uh, this uh, more recently. Yeah, the only thing is you need to balance uh, all your like executive team resources, right? So you need to be careful of like, you know, distracting people. As founders, you can think of sorts of strategies, but then you hire like VPs or executives 
they should still focus on one area, like, you know, which they should excel, right? They can participate in the decision-making process and provide the opinions, but in terms of execution, they really, really need to focus on some one thing. So your advice is focus is important. Yes. Yeah, so get once we, we sort of cover the founding team. Once you start like scaling, like maybe you get like 20 people or so, like you need to start getting those executives, like VPs, right? So like people who would who would just solve the pieces that you're not either comfortable to solve or like they just know it more, right? So like and they can bring this direct expertise in how to sell to builders or like developers. So and these people as founders, as I said, like you can allow uh, yourself, yourself like being a little more get distracted with new strategies and stuff as long as your business is operating. But when you hire executives, you, you need to make sure those people are focused on certain like single area and they're just the best people who can solve this problem, right? And it doesn't have to be like the, say like in our case, for instance, it doesn't necessarily should be someone who has like exact credentials or did something like that in the past. It may be former entrepreneur who just sort of want to get like, we have a few entrepreneurs working now for Mighty who just like literally want to have a few years of like a little like, not to say like, I wouldn't say like relaxed mode, but a little like gap between like starting their own companies because starting your own company is very stressful, right? And so sometimes people just want two or three years of like, you know, gaps between those uh, ventures, right? So these are the great talent for like, if you want to get like exec, just try to get from an entrepreneur who operated in this sort of similar adjacent industries and he would just bring a team as well. He'll just create a little team and it'll just focus on like, you know, developer model, something else, right? How do you have to manage a former founder differently? That's a really good question. So in our case, like people just saw us, uh, you know, raising more capital and growing more and more in within the YC ecosystem. And we sort of build this uh, friendly relationship with former YC peers and our badge and with some folks around us. And, and we've just been casually chatting. And it's it's no secret that like there is very little chance that the startup will will start like, you know, growing nicely, right? So like maybe 5%, right? So, but, you know, for other opportunities, some people are just like trying to push it to the very end, but others like just, you know, when they understand that something isn't working or they're not able to raise money, they, they like try to sell the company and, you know, do a little exit, but then they, they, they're great candidates to, to sort of poach. Obviously, like we don't pouch people when they're still working on the startup, but it's sort of happening organically uh, in a way, right? And of course, in future, we're also uh, open to like hiring or maybe acquiring even, uh, you know, startup companies in our sector, might be something like in the cut software space or like a little, some of those areas where we're less uh, developed yet, right? So like in the, specifically in the software side, for instance, or like, you know, things like permitting. So we are looking to uh, automate more and more the process of, you know, creating these permit, per, per, permits packages. Uh, that's now area where we're looking to partner with startups. So the great advice, uh, when you like really want to solve a little problem, uh, go and try to solve this problem first, right? So if you're not able to solve it, again, like this is advice to entrepreneurs. <laughs> so, so if you know that you're not able to solve it and you can't raise money to kind of pivot and change a model, 
then just go and do something else, right? That's the nature of Silicon Valley. You don't, you don't have to push for like eight years or 10 years, right? You just reasonably push it to the level when you did what you could to reasonable extent, but then it's time to explore something else. And that's a beautiful thing about Silicon Valley because lots of other places are not really uh, sort of accommodating that type of behavior. Yeah, you've worked in a number of startup ecosystems. Is that the biggest difference in Silicon Valley? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So tolerance to risk in Silicon Valley is absolutely uh, like um, one of the key advantages, right? In Singapore, for instance, if you fail, you can't, it will be very hard for you to start a new business, right? So in Silicon Valley, people like, except naturally, they think it's a great asset if you fail like a couple of times, right? But like, you're not failing just by like, say, sort of like you're starting and bootstrapping, right? So you're trying to start, raise money, launch product, you know, try to like get to a certain point, right? And if it just started, you know, starting to grow, then you just continue growing, right? So it just like become a CEO, founding team of these growing startup. But if, you, if you're not success, successful in this, you can still like sell company, you can still do like a quick hire with some other company. There are so many options, right? But even if you're not able to do that, you still get so much learning and experience from launching this product and achieving certain stage that other investors and VCs actually appreciate that. Uh, and they, they just think like uh, it's so much less risky to invest in the serial entrepreneurs, even if, if they like failed a few times. Is there anything that Silicon Valley can learn from Singapore or other ecosystems where you've worked? Yeah, I think that's 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 one of the uh, sort of uh, area that I already mentioned that this concept of like being laser sharp focus, which is like what most of Silicon Valley investors recommend to their portfolio, just focus on one thing versus like Asian approach, which is a little more like, okay, we did something, it is successful, let's start seeing what else can we do with this exact same asset. What we can do is this user base. Can we launch some you know, different, very different product for the same user base? Can we uh, somehow like, you know, do partnership program? Or can we just simply use the same, in our case, for instance, we designed this house for backyard studio, but can we do with the same houses resorts? Can we sell it to resource people, right? So that's sort of like a concept of carryover which is really something that uh, U.S. startups and Silicon Valley startups are not that good at. And why do you think that is? I think it's just people afraid of getting distracted, frankly. And the investors are afraid of get, founders getting distracted. And in a way, it's a function of building good team, right? If you able as a founding team, attract great executives, which will focus on certain uh, you know, problems and do better than you, then you have his business and you have his time. And of course, it, it also requires certain culture in the company and certain uh, you know, structures and processes that would allow you as a founder to, to think about this, to spend time for these new ideas and strategies. And, and this is actually pretty hard. Like, and that's now probably a problem with most of founders, not just Silicon Valley, but some other places is that they are, a lot of times they're not operators, right? they don't know how to operate and scale companies, right? So they have to quickly learn, you know, how to build culture, how to scale processes, how to build systems that can be, uh, you know, uh, scaling in a way by themselves, right? And that's, that's a really difficult thing uh, because, you know, most of founders can't really sort of switch their thinking to this operator role. 
How did you learn how to do that? Oh, we've been lucky. We actually got to uh, YC Series A program, you know, accepted to the growth program, for instance, which, you know, YC is doing a great job and sort of trying to pick founders that sort of achieve certain stage, but like they need to get to the next stage and they just try to connect them with, you know, more mature companies and founders of those companies. Uh, but we also, one of the biggest thing we did, like we try to talk to people, the founders who are one or two rounds ahead of us, right? In our sector or like similar kind of hard tech sectors, and we just try to talk to them and see what what are the problems they face at our stage and at their stage, so we can we can understand and sort of interpolate it a little bit to us and see what are the things we should be doing better, right? But of course, you you should also use coaches and. You know, you, you have to start reading books, right? <laughs> like, you know, management books and, you know, cultural books and stuff like that. There is no, like, way someone, like, uh, being, like, a first-time entrepreneur can just learn by intuition. There should be a process. There should be an educational process, whether formal or informal. Don't just listen. Get engaged. You've heard me talking about the Startups for Good Giving Circle, and maybe you're wondering how does it work? Go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. You'll be able to sign up as a member and choose to make a reoccurring donation. Let's say $20 a month or whatever you can afford. We will focus on newer or startup tech nonprofits to provide the initial angel funding to get them off the ground. We will vote on a nonprofit recipient of our grant approximately quarterly. All donations are U.S. tax deductible. So go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. Any good books to recommend? Oh, on culture, I really love this one. Uh, Netflix, um, about Netflix culture, is called No Rules Rule. This is one of the favorite books on, on culture. But again, people can think differently about you know, culture. And there is also this radical candor uh, uh, a book, I don't remember exactly, but basically it's it's a concept of providing feedback in a very constructive manner, but in such a way that people really treat this as feedback and act on this. You know, in terms of like inspirational books, I, I really love like Jim Collins stuff. I, I know there's a little older uh, school, uh, but, you know, uh, Good to Great, all these books, like they really inspiring you, you know, to, to start building the company in the proper way. Like in just like in a way, like you need to start reading books that will be simple enough and is inspirational enough so that you can continue learning, right? So Jim Collins is, is really good from this uh, spectrum. Very inspirational books. Uh, yeah. yeah. I read the No Rules Rules book, and I think there's a lot of, of takeaways about how to have a creative culture that continues to innovate, how to delegate decisions and have a high trust environment. But I, I do wonder how it applies to the manufacturing repetitive operational parts of a business where you might see things that happen over and over again and need to follow yeah. a checklist or follow yeah. uh, regulatory or safety rules. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, so for this, you probably need to read books like Toyota Dow and, you know, Toyota about Toyota production system and all these, like, they also, in a way, inspirational books, but about, like, you know, lean culture, right? So, like, in manufacturing, you can also create a culture of innovation, but it will be a culture of small innovations, right? Like micro-improvements. 
And like, obviously, like uh, Netflix is a little more about creative industry, right? So, but Toyota system is very applicable to lots of manufacturing companies. Those systems are very similar. It's just the key difference is you, you the cost of mistake is higher. So you do micro experiments, right? So like in a way, like just measure all these experiments all the time to make sure like uh, you actually uh, do a good job, right? But this is actually pretty difficult for most of people who worked in manufacturing, they're not really in the mindset of micro improvements, right? So we have to really uh, work with our people to like really try to inspire them to like sort of look for those improvements and and a lot of times there are like simple things, right? So like things that people already aware of, they just do it in the same way. And then they start, okay, how we can optimize labor hours by like, you know, 10%. We ask our like uh, trades, our, our construction workers on the floor to actually think about how to optimize operations. And you can build a little incentive scheme around that, right? If you optimize your, la your labor hours, you can get, you know, uh, extra benefits and stuff, right? And at the end of the day, like we as a company are uh, looking to produce more and more homes in, 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 in the facility we currently operate from, right? So they, you just need to like explain people that you, I mean, sort of it's hard, but you, you just coach and explain them that if, if they start participating this innovation process and optimization process, they will just have better job, right? Over time and have better salary, uh, but you can also create formal programs around that. And do you follow Lean? We try. I can't say like we we definitely like follow all the principles, but we we try. It's very hard actually to try, uh, to follow like uh, Lean principles. It is. It is. But very very powerful. I'm also curious to hear your thoughts on the transition from being an investor to a founder CEO. What was that like? You know, when I started this incubator in Singapore, it was a hardware incubator with my co-founder there, like which was very much a founding job, right? So we were like venture builders and we were participating in the company building process, like this very hands-on sort of mentorship. And we even run like formal uh, sort of incubator accelerator programs. And it was really lots of fun, right? So lots of fun, a lot of work, but lots of fun. But then we sort of grew and started managing other people's money just like as a more a more like formal venture fund. The, the job changed, right? So we started like really looking for, you know, startup competitive deals, right? So when you can get to the cup table with top tier funds, and it was my job for like a couple of years, uh, but I, I really didn't like it. Like the only thing you do, like you're trying to find this hot deal and explain to the founders that you are a great investor and they should allocate you, you know, uh, you know, something in the round, right? So that 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 part of venture capital is something I really I really didn't enjoy, right? So sort of naturally I started thinking about, you know, how I can go back to to like the the, the more interesting parts. And it just happened that Mitri shared this idea of uh, it was a desktop printer back then, like uh, printing this little like horizontal line in the, in the air without any support, right? So he demonstrated the potential of the material and printing technology. I just got so much excited, but also it, it, it just coincided with my motivation to start building company more seriously. And in a way, I also got a lot of inspiration from some of the top founders I invested in, right? So like guys like Blake, who is founder of Blake Show of um, uh, Boom Supersonic. And I, I mean, like, 
I tried to, you know, pouch him like for like, you know, mentorship and stuff like that. But it was, it is hard. It's still hard. Like, I mean, I, I still can like get some advice from him, but it's really hard because these people are so busy. Right. But even like just being like, following them and as investor for instance i understand a lot of things now much better what th those folks are doing right but there is no universal code i know a lot of venture capitalists who try to become founders and they fail because they thought it's cool uh it's actually not cool it's actually a lot of work <laughs> so you have to be ready to work like you know way more than you do in venture capital and a lot of this work is is hard because you need to change yourself like that's the hardest part right every time every like year every six months even you have to think what what are the missing gaps what are the things that uh, prevent you from like growing further and, and if things that are blocking you it means the entire company is blocked right so if you can't identify the gaps nobody else will be able to identify them right so you kind of have to keep like learning and looking at you very critically as like someone who just doesn't know anything, right? So like, because really like everyone, you're reinventing yourself as a, as a founding team, every round, every like six months even, you have to really critical thing. And at some point it may be a situation then you say, look, I actually know the best person to run the company. Or like, um, I don't know, like one of us will just say like, you know, I just prefer to focus on this function, which I, I love doing. I just feel like it's too much for me, like doing so many, uh, you know, jobs. That's also fine. It happens. Uh, you just need to be really uh, candid uh, with yourself. Yeah, I really like this concept that you have to keep working on yourself and growing, reinventing yourself continuously. In theory of constraints, they talk about management attention is the bottleneck in every business. And I think it's even more true in startups. Absolutely, because the environment is so uh, intense and there is so much pressure from those milestones you took like on the round and some of the investors and the competitive landscape. Like you just like keep being under pressure and if you're just like trying to work, uh, <clears throat> just address the immediate issues, it's going to be a failure, right? So like you need to think all the time. We need to have this bandwidth somehow balancing these immediate stuff and like longer term stuff. And, and the learning is obviously longer term stuff. But to really understand where to learn, how to learn, you need to understand the gaps, right? And this is the hardest part. Because like for everyone thinks they're the smartest like in the room, right? So, but really you need to have this very open conversation with yourself. Say, look, I'm actually, you know, not the best person to do that. Like, you know, HR stuff, whatever culture. And these are the gaps I have. And, and of course you can run a bunch of, you know, things like 360s and stuff. But even if you do all the, like hire the best HR people as founders, you may still not listen to them as long. I mean, you need to bring yourself in this mental mood then you're open for learning and, and you understand that you are probably, you know, missing a few things which you're not aware of, right? I'm just finding, uh, trying to find the right word for this, but it's, it's, it's like a mental attitude which, uh, you know, uh, sort of enforce you uh, to uh, accept your mistakes and gaps. And because of that, you can, you can learn much faster. Would you rather be right or would you rather learn? 
Oh, yeah. of course, everyone yeah. want to be right. And I also yeah. want to be right, right? So, but like um, a lot of times I even like try to be right, like on the meeting straight away, but like after a while, I understand what I was wrong, right? And then just go to people and say like, you know, I was wrong. <laughs> so like, that, that is my idea. Like it's, I'm a little bit slow thinker here, right? So like, I mean, in a way, like my, you know, if, you know, there are two systems, right? So slow thinking, fast thinking, like system one and two. So this is like a theory. I was, I forgot this book, but basically- Kahneman, I think. Yeah, yeah. So essentially, like, I'm, I'm like fast thinker, like when it comes to like, you know, like sort of like environment and they have to make this decision really fast, but then slow thinking system starts to work and I understand I made the wrong decision, right? And I'm trying to learn now to uh, solve this fast thinking system uh, before I make a decision, but it's hard because you think you're smart. So, and this mental attitude, like, you know, just triggers some decisions. Like you think it's a great decision just because you're smart. Like, but a lot of times it is not it, it, because you're not aware of context and situation. And some of people in the room may be way more aware, right? They may have way smarter ideas. They're just shy. And because you're trying to be like smart as a, as a CEO or as like C-level, they you just don't you know, let you know, people talk. And that's the biggest, one of the biggest growth area for me, for instance, right? And it's just recognizing this alone, it, it already takes a lot of like uh, emotional energy, right? So just this is your gap. And I think this is a trap that a lot of founders fall into is believing you have to have the answer all the time. And that just because there are people in the room not talking, that's a question you have to answer. Instead of maybe... You need to help ask the right questions. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's why you like need someone like Scrum Masters as well, like who would facilitate the discussion, right? And in a way, like yeah, as a as a founder, should be the last speaking in the room, right? So like really, uh, like and again, this is easier said than done. Like, but we're trying to use like Scrum Masters as people who can facilitate the discussion and coach other people to really sort of be, uh, you know, less shy and open uh, up a little bit and speak up and like, even like, you know, in front of CEO, like even if, if, if they just like uh, and starting, starting to work at the company, right? That's hard because most of cultures, they're not like Netflix. Obviously, right? So like most of cultures, they're much way more vertical and linear, even if in startups, right? People say we are, we are horizontal, flat, but in reality, cultures are not... Uh, incentivizing this open debate right so when they come to our company we we sort of like try to like force even in a way people to to kind of start this debate and open this debate but it takes time right i'm curious how you talk about mission internally i i hear the company externally talking a lot about environmental and affordable housing which one is more yeah. important yeah, so we recently reformulated our mission, uh, and I think it's not public yet, but I think it's no big deal if I just uh, share a lot. Like uh, right now, essentially, it, it is very simple. It help the world build better, right? So essentially, when we, when we, what we mean by better, it's not just, uh, you know, more affordable, or faster, but it's also more sustainable because if you're just trying to, uh, build homes and like sort of unlock supply with automation, but then you produce all those like in the world where we solve these problems, like like we can we can produce those missing million homes, but if you create this at the expense of carbon footprint, that would be a disaster. There'll be, you know, additional like few percent carbon uh, footprint because, you know, construction and building operations actually 39% uh, of uh, 
uh, greenhouse emissions. So that's that's huge, the largest single contributor actually. So we started thinking about sustainability not at the beginning like it was organic for us. We sort of like started looking at if it was like solving like automation and and sort of like really producing more interesting designs that would appeal to next generation home buyers. But then it's sort of like the world is start like changing a bit like and and we also realize that there is this new uh, demand and this custom behavior is changing. People care about sustainability like before they didn't care like how, when they purchasing homes, right? They didn't care that much. So it sort of aligned with our intention to make more sustainable homes, but uh, customers and, and like millennials and younger millennials and Gen Z uh, getting, uh, getting like to this uh, power of purchasing homes. So like at least like, you know, renting homes that would be designed to new requirements, right? To sustainability requirements. And this, I think is just the beginning of this mega trend, uh, which would potentially change the entire industry, right? In a way, like I believe uh, if home builders won't be uh, not able to adopt to this uh, sustainability uh, request and uh, ask, uh, they would probably be out of the market next 10, 15 years. Another thing I'd love to chat about is your approach to the regulatory environment, which seems different than the stereotypical Silicon Valley disruption approach. Yeah, so disruption is a great approach when it comes to sort of niche uh, niches, right? So like you uh, trying to find a niche that would have a different sort of value network, right? So like where uh, your technology would uh, would make sense um, to certain type of buyers, right? But people, this is a traditional definition of disruptive, like like you know Clayton's right, so definition of disruptive innovation, but like uh, it sort of became a word that was well overused, right? So like uh, a lot of people are they, they, a lot of times startups trying to say they're doing disruption, but they're not really uh, sort of trying to find this niche market with uh, with the right uh, you know uh, value uh, value network for for the technology and product, so. Uh, I think uh, you, the right answer to your question is is really that we are actually doing disruption, but we're doing disruption in a more classical way. Uh, we're trying to find a market where people do care about our value propositions, such as sustainability, such as 3D printed look, right? Which is say that is future of homes. And they these become the decision making drivers, right? And that's why also we focus on B2C or micro developers because these people care about these things, but larger developers don't care yet, right? So in a way, the only thing they care is cost. Yes, cost is important. I'm not saying like cost is not important, but we're still early in, in our automation roadmap. And we're also early in material scaling plans. So we're not necessarily in position to now, like, you know, provide the cheapest housing solution, right? So we, we knew that when we started, that it would take a while to, to get there. So we were specifically looking for things uh, which, uh, you know, cost can be on par. Like if you look at like turnkey construction cost for, for us, it's on par with alternative offerings on the market. Uh, but the rest of the things are, uh, are drivers, really. And, and then you just find this market, like in any industry, there are some uh, you know, niches that kind of emerge and it just aid you as I mentioned, for instance, it, it was this niche market, 
we just didn't expect it's going to be growing so fast, right? So like, so sort of like uh, this market is becoming this, you know, classical in a way for us, at least what we believe in, like becoming this classical battery case or whatever, like memory, uh, memory case, like uh, in all these uh, classical books are uh, provided, right? So, uh, but we may be wrong, right? So it may be just our uh, philo- philosophical discussion here. So, but, you know, break, uh, so uh, a lot of, and our perspective um, is then people say we're disrupting when they actually trying to just go head to head with companies, right? So they say, oh, okay, I have better technology. I'll go to and just get someone like Cisco out of the market, right? So like, okay, guys, like, but that Cisco has been building or whatever, like company has built this, you know, business partnerships and networks and channel partnership for many, many years. Even if you have the best technology, it would take like the same amount of time for you to figure out if you want to ha- go head to head, same market and same, you know, um, essentially uh, value proposition. Like technology is just very little uh, ingredient there, right? So, and, and sort of like that's, that's how uh, companies are mostly mistaken about disruptive approach. And we saw a lot of big failures because of that. Yeah. And you see a company like Uber say that really seems to be, or is known for taking a ask forgiveness approach, right? Like there's local laws about getting licensed as a taxi, just push through it. And if you get in trouble, you know, clean it up later. And I think in the construction industry, there's also a lot of local laws. There's standards about how you're supposed to do things. Um, you've taken the yeah, approach. You that. Unfortunately, you can't do the, this type of game in construction just because we're talking about safety of people, right? So um, uh, one thing you can do in terms of like hacking compliance is, is just building the right partnerships, right? Early on and sort of informing you on roadmap with this, you know, uh, tight partnerships. Like we, we, the, one of the first things we, we did when we started Mighty Buildings, we approached UL. And when we approach UL, um, we sort of already knew we're going to be doing the new material and new construction method, right? And the entire UL, there was no single person who knew what to do with us, right? So we sort of, they had to assemble a little like task force to, to sort of think what needs to be done, right? So to make sure technology like this can be compliant. And it took a while, right? But if you hadn't started this so earlier, we would probably still in certification process. But right now we already certify our first building and shipping successfully uh, and we certify now the second uh, production system and, and uh, new floor plans and product line. Um, and it's just, I'm not saying like this partnership is gonna accelerate you, but it will help you understand what you need to do, right? early on. So you can inform in a way, even your own development requirements, R&D requirements, right? That That's something that a lot of people are not really doing. They're not trying to go to certification company uh, uh, regulators to sort of learn from like initial discussions, what needs to be added as like requirements for your technology or material whatsoever, so that you have easy times in compliance. So embrace your regulators or standard makers as a Absolutely. customer, as a partner. And as a customer, as a stakeholder, as partner, because they as much interested in, in doing that as you, because with, with these new technologies and new 
approaches, they open up a new market, right? So they will never be doing anything exclusively for you, but you can be a first player in the market, right? And they, they will be interested to open up a totally new market with using you as a, as a case, basically. To even like to justify internal investments, like all these task force I was talking about, we never paid for any of this work, right? Because like it was the sole potential of new industry, of this construction 3D printing industry, which is forming. Wonderful. Do you see a world where this sort of 3D printing is, that you're doing is happening on site? It is hard. I know that some people are, you know, trying to do that and with some success, but at the end of the day, like there are core fundamental problems, uh, regardless whether it's concrete or some other material, printing on site means you need to set up the printer, calibrate it all the time, right? So like for each single print, uh, this type of cost people never really account for. Um, I mean, then they communicate the like unit economics and stuff like that, right? So regardless, again, of the material for us is actually less, for instance, for composite material, but for concrete is very severe. The, the environmental impact of like factors like humidity, temperature, and everything like uh, impacts the quality of printing so much that you can have like deluminations and cracks and stuff like that. So, and again, like these are minor problems people typically not really thinking that much, right? That's why you have pilots in like very predictable climate where like almost no rain, right? So like a very like stable temperature. Uh, but if you try to do it like in California, it's already becoming way more difficult, right? So sort of like I do see potential uh, of on-site printing, but it's sort of at massive um communities when you need to like print thousand homes in the exact same location maybe and if you do it in the right climate zone um uh, which is a huge restriction on your business model uh, but you know that's still there is a market for for different approaches right so like it's just with its own limitation we have our own limitation for instance we are uh, more expensive than concrete printing now uh, and we'll be working on optimization of our material cost uh, but it will take like a couple of years to get there, right? But with composite material, we have another thing. We can engineer material to be more sustainable. We can use recycled glass, for instance, in our material up to 70% and things like that, right? Which you can't really do much with concrete, even like, you know, modif modified concrete, like some folks are using. I wish we had more time, but we should probably wrap up. Uh, where can people learn more about you or the company online? So yeah, at mightybuildings.com and you know, all social media we have. Um, but you, as, as if you run a construction tech company or just considering to start construction tech or prop tech company, you also feel free to, to approach me directly. You can just email me at slav at mightybuildings.com. Thank you so much for coming on and thanks for offering to help founders directly like that. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.